this time on Watchers of Tomorrow. And now you're back from outer space. I just walked in to find you with here that sad face upon your face. Hello, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. I am Gepwin, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi. Come at me surprised, as we got another pretty good episode. It's uh, kind of, a, you know, there's elements that are very, you know, already been kind of done in Star Trek already, but it all kind of came together pretty well, so. Yeah, it's right. pretty good. It's got a little bit like they they rush the ending as always because yeah. for some reason That's these I don't know how they always manage to make this era of television both drag and be rushed. Well, it's like they do like okay, we're we're about 20 minutes into our episode here. We have how much time left? Uh-oh. <laughs> so this episode is called The Survivor. Mhm. Uh-huh. Hence the, my music choice there at the, at the cold open. <laughs> it was written by James uh, Shermer, who this is his first uh, Star Trek credit, but he's been a producer and editor, uh, writer, been all over TV, uh, done stuff for The Mod Squad, Star Trek and Hutch, Six Million Dollar Man, Fantasy Island, MacGyver, all, all the things. I think this is actually his only uh, Star Trek uh, credit, if I recall. Yes. And possibly his only animation thing as well. It's hard to tell. Yeah, we got a got a run of the mill uh, t- uh, TV writer uh, giving us a pretty good episode. So hooray! And also we have a guest star. Holy smokes! Who's our mysterious guest star here? So we have Ted Knight playing Carter Winston. Asterisk. We'll get to that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he's best known for later being on the Mary Tyler Moore Show and Caddyshack. Yes, uh, he was also on The Love Boat, as like a bunch of people. <laughs> <laughs> so an actual name. They have somebody who, who we like you would have heard of, which is interesting for the for the uh, animated series. Like they used to do that in the in the original series several times, but the animated series they usually just don't bother. Yes, yeah, so, though there is kind of something funky going on because I don't think he's like properly listed in the credits. Oh. <laughs> yeah probably something surprise weird. guest star <laughs> also just to say they they introduce a new crew member in this episode i use introduce very loosely to like replace ahura because they have nicole nichols voicing someone else yes so i guess she's technically a guest star sort of well well she'll pop up more later but uh, lieutenant Mares, correct yes the cat girl yes you know, a big floofy uh, mane on her, and she's kind of orangish. Yep, has a tail, works as comm officer. Uh, you've seen pictures of her because she's the Star Trek cat girl. She just shows up. Like, Kirk just turns around and goes, Lieutenant Mares, and then there's a cat woman. It's like, oh, okay. Yes. Well, I, I guess she's always been there. It just we've never noticed her until now. Yeah, she's on the opposite shift as Ahura, so. Yes. <laughs> All right, we should jump in. I don't know what we're actually going to talk about with this one, but there's a story here so that we I, I can got follow. A few things, but yeah, let's let's go, let's go get into things here. The Enterprise is patrolling the Romulan neutral zone again when they find a small one-man craft that's been hit by a meteor swarm. 
Hmm, I'm having uh, flashbacks to the expanse here with you know, I'll then I'll avoid the spoilers. <laughs> I was really curious whether they just made up a dumb word, so I wanted to see if a meteor swarm is a thing. And in fact it's a ninth level sorcerer spell that does twenty D six fire and twenty D six bludgeoning damage after a failed dex roll. Hooray. I, I plan to get that later. That would really screw up a ship though. That's like Yes. <laughs> It's like, well, there's all this rock and fire everywhere. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> they identify the ship as being registered to one Carter Winston, who everyone knows, apparently, and has been missing for about five years. You mean you don't know who Carter Winston is, Gepwin? Where have you been? <laughs> Under a space rock. Under one of these meteor swarms. <laughs> yes. Uh, by the way, uh, just sort of a, a thing. I, 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 I always have to mention this occasionally. Uh, a meteor is a, a space rock that is entering an atmosphere of a, of a planet. What about if it's entering the atmosphere of a ship? Then it's just an asteroid impact. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> anyway. So they beam this dude aboard, and they all immediately recognize him as the super-rich philanthropist who swoops in to save Federation planets from food shortages and other such things. So uh, two notes. Uh, first off, this guy has magnificent, uh, magnificent mustache. That he does. And second of all, uh, he really should have been around uh, f- during uh, during that one, uh, you know, a famine on that one planet. They had the uh, the guy went crazy and ended up becoming a Shakespearean actor later. That's true. Uh, he would have come. Yeah, he could have come in handy back then. But apparently, he just wasn't a philanthropist then. Well, he's been missing for like five years, so that must have been in there, maybe. No, that, that you know the the, the whole uh, you know uh, regime there was was like wise why back, yeah. Yeah, maybe he just wasn't rich then. The existence of this dude throws like a lot of what we learn about the Federation later into question. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe he's not a Federation citizen or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> so Kirk verifies his identity with identity tapes and pictures and fingerprints, and he's definitely not who he says he is. Because we've verified his his identity six ways from Sunday at this point. Yes, everything checks out, so we have to be suspicious. (laughs) The medical exam shows some minor inconsistencies, but McCoy is sure that it's just a calibration error. Alternatively, he might just have four kidneys. You never know. They then bring in Carter's fiancée, Anne Nord, who by a huge coincidence, has been serving on the Enterprise as a security officer. Oh, well, that's convenient. They do seem pleased to see each other after all of this time, but Carter says that he's changed because he survived a ship crash and he was nursed back to health on an alien planet. And also, we haven't seen each other in five years. Yes, so uh, it's going to be kind of impossible to just jump back into this. And um, also, I do not love you anymore. Go away. Yeah, Anne's disappointed and confused, but Carter's like, nope, can't be married. Go forget me. Bye-bye. Well, uh, I guess that means that Anne's, um, you know, she can find love elsewhere then. Maybe maybe there's a Vulcan that's technically not, not, not dating anyone <laughs> right now on the ship. Hmm. Later, Kirk is filling out paperwork in his quarters. When Carter arrives to discuss his ship, Kirk is explaining how it's probably unsalvageable because it's so damaged when Carter crosses his arms and suddenly transforms into a large red tentacle alien. Well, I, I guess uh, I guess that's just as you do if you're a red tentacle alien who disguises a person, I guess. So. Yeah. He knocks out Kirk and tucks him <laughs> lovingly into bed. Oh no, bad touch. <laughs> Before transforming into Kirk himself and heading to the bridge. 
Hmm. No one will suspect that this person who's awkward and all that is not Kirk, even though we've had that plot multiple times on Star Trek before. Yeah. You'd think that they would have procedures in place for this by now. Yes. Once there, Carter, as Kirk orders them to set course for Ratar 3, a planet inside of the neutral zone, even though, as Sulu reminds them, if they are found violating the neutral zone, the treaty allows the Romulans to confiscate their ship. Well, I guess they probably updated the, uh, the treaty since last time, since the last time we were kind of derping around the, uh, the, uh, the neutral zone there. Uh, the Romulans are like, yeah, you you got to surrender now, because otherwise we'll just blow you up. Yep. There was no, no mention of a treaty, so... So maybe after that, the Romulans is like, hey, okay, let's let's actually like figure out some, some proper little procedures here so that we could actually, I don't know, keep Kirk from just violating the neutral zone constantly. Come on. Carter leaves the bridge and Kirk wakes up in his quarters and heads back to the bridge where he's very surprised to find that the ship has entered the neutral zone and that he apparently ordered it. Well, uh, maybe I was commanding the ship in my sleep again. Kirk does a surprisingly sensible thing and reports immediately to sickbay to find out why he's blacking out and giving orders. Yes. So I was like, well, the, everyone says I was here, so logically that must suggest that I was actually here. Ah. So maybe the thing is, maybe I am the asshole here. Meanwhile, Carter finds McCoy in sickbay, knocks him out too, takes his form, uh, before, but just then Anne arrives. She wants to get McCoy's advice because for some reason he's the one people go to for advice on this ship. Yeah, well, this is before the era of counselors and things like that. So it's like, uh, you're someone who knows something about brains, right? You installed one, right? That one time. So you must have some lifeline in terms of talking about emotional issues, right? <laughs> she still loves Carter and doesn't know what to do. Uh, McCoy, who we remember is Carter, reiterates that Carter told her to forget about him and she should do so and go away. Yeah, so he's a total jerk face. You don't want him. Um, yeah, just just abandon all your love and, and dream. Before things get any more awkward, Kirk and Spock arrive uh, for Kirk's medical examination, but McCoy blows him off and tells him to come back later. Spock does ask about Carter's exam and implies that McCoy may have made an error, and McCoy goes, yeah, maybe. I'll double-check that, which makes Kirk and Spock immediately suspicious. Because McCoy is, is too egotistical to admit defeat. Yeah, especially when Spock's the one who suggests he might have made a mistake. Yes. <laughs> it's like, wow, he's not a complete asshole to Spock. Um, something must be up. So after a brief discussion in the hallway, they return to sickbay to find McCoy waking up on the laboratory floor. McCoy, drunk again. Kirk thinks there's something very odd about the exam room now and begins addressing one of the tables. You'd think that it might be, like, McCoy who would notice this oddity first. Nope. McCoy's like, why are you talking to a table? And Kirk goes, remember, you only have two beds. There are now three. Oh, I, Dr. McCoy, who never admits a mistake, uh, am going to ignore this because this was not a mistake on my part. I'm a doctor, not a mathematician. <laughs> no. Not the Count from Sesame Street. <laughs> Now give me 300 cc's of whatever. <laughs> so when the bed doesn't respond to any of Kirk's questioning, he threatens to pour acid on it, which does get him to transform into something that Spock identifies as a Vindorian. Yeah, well, it's uh, convenient that Spock knows what these guys are. 
you know, especially since we learned up find out later that they are like super isolated and everyone kind of tries to avoid them. Yeah, they're apparently a quarantined race of shapeshifters that lie and deceit as a way of life. So the Federation just goes, you stay on your planet over there and we will pretend you don't exist. Yep. <laughs> Carter then attacks them all and flees. Oh no, more bad touch. Spock sends out an intruder alert and Anne is the one who finds Carter now looking like Carter in a corridor. But she can't bring herself to shoot him, even with stun, I guess. Yes. This, like, I can't bring myself to shoot someone story, like, really doesn't work when you have super reliable non-lethal weapons. Indeed, but, uh, well, maybe she's not a very good security officer. Alternatively, uh, all security officers only have phases that are set to kill. I heard there was a way to make this stun, but I've never been able to get it to go. Whoop-de-doop-de-doo. My nails are just too long to fiddle with these tiny knobs. Uh, Star Trek, get better. Kirk shows up to tell her that the real card is probably dead. Sure. They are then interrupted by the arrival of two Romulan battlecruisers. Dang it, are they alien impersonators too? Maybe. They're showing up in Klingon ships again. Oh, they, they most certainly are then. Well, this is this is just interesting. This is like the second time that the Romulans have shown up in what is classically, for anyone who's watched Star Trek after original series, a Klingon ship. But these ships were originally designed for Romulans. But in Star Trek Three: A Search for Spock, they, at the last minute in the script, changed the main villains from Romulans to Klingons, but they didn't have time to make new ship models. Oh, it's like, oh, well, you already got everything built let's just keep going with this and uh, no one will care yeah so because of star trek 3 that design became the iconic klingon ship that we now know from next generation though uh, i i should also note that they do have sort of romulan symbols on the uh, the bits of the ship there so at least it's kind of on theme there yes that they do the Romulans are here to confiscate the Enterprise, as they have a right to do according to the Treaty with the Federation. Uh, Kirk uses the old, okay, let me prepare my crew gambit that any idiot should know that means they're about to be shot. Yes. <laughs> Though surprisingly, Kirk doesn't shoot them. <laughs> At least not right away. He and Spock think it's a little bit suspicious that the Romulans were here waiting for them. Like, you know, if they knew Carter was on board and was going to lure them into the neutral zone or something. Yes, Mikey's suspicious that while the Enterprise is patrolling, that the Romulans wouldn't be also patrolling. Kirk hails them again because he's not going to surrender. Because if the Romulans did in fact lure them into the zone, this is a violation of the treaty. But of course, the Romulans know that they don't have any way to prove this and threaten to take the ship by force. So we ha- we we get to to confiscate your guys' ships instead. Uh uh-uh. uh. No, we're gonna yep. we're, we're gonna we're gonna beat you up. <laughs> Unfortunately for the Enterprise, around that time, Carter has now taken the form of a random crewman and is disarming the deflector. Now, what if this wasn't just him taking a, a, the over the role of a random crewman, but there was actually a, a saboteur on board? Yeah, it could be both, I suppose. <laughs> he knocks out Scotty. The Enterprise just has problems. Yes. <laughs> Back on the bridge, they notice the lack of shields. And also the shuttle bay door is opening, probably because Carter's trying to escape. They do manage to shut it, but, um, you know, it's going to take hours and hours and hours to repair their deflector shield to get into any shape to fight. So they're kind of boned here, it looks like. Meanwhile, Anne has sort of 
randomly come across Carter again. Well, she probably heard about the shuttle uh, bay, uh, you know, situation there. And, you know, so it's like, oh, he's not going to be able to escape that way. I, I can maybe sort of intercept him as he's trying to leave her, maybe going to the transporter room or something. This time, though, she is a bit more willing to threaten him, uh, but takes some time to ask questions. Carter explains that the real Carter did, in fact, crash land on his planet, that he took care of him for almost a year before he finally died. And by taking his shape, his species basically takes on some of the personality and memories and emotions of the person they're impersonating, and the longer they do it, the more of them they get. So that's a little awkward. You're basically cloning somebody whenever you do this. Sort of, yeah. It's weird. Also, it's magical. So he still loves Anne, but then he changes into true tentacle form and goes, could you ever love me like this? And before Anne can decide whether or not she's into hentai, Kirk shows up. Anne, don't answer that question. This is a children's show. (laughs) Uh, Kirk's about to take Carter into custody, but then they're attacked and everyone falls over and Carter runs away. Oh, we're really bad at this capturing random people running around on our ship thing, aren't we? That they are. Mm. One dude can just run around the ship as long as they like. Yes. <laughs> Back on the bridge, the Romulans are threatening to destroy the ship. And without any shields, the Enterprise is a sitting duck, or clay pigeon, as they say. Just... Yes. I've never heard someone use that before, but sure. I mean, they're not moving as fast. Uh, you know, maybe they could try to like outrun them or something like that. Yeah. And then get shot at, but you know. But just then, one of the deflectors comes back online, allowing Kirk to order that they fire phasers and photons, disabling one of the Romulan ships, and the other one promptly leaves because they proudly believe they found the spy and the gigs up. Well, now that was convenient. Uh, Good work, Scotty. You are the most competent man on the ship again. Yeah, except Scotty didn't repair anything, because he said it would take hours, and it's going to. Also, Scotty, why are you just hanging out on the bridge? I thought you were supposed to be repairing something. (laughs) According to (laughs) Spock... If Carter can become a table, then there's no reason he can't become a deflector shield. Okay, then. If you can become a wrench, you can become a ball. (laughs) Carter enters in his uh, tentacle form and apologizes for putting them through all this trouble and explains that on his planet, he's a non-producer of the lowest class and that the Romulans offered him a way to be of value to society. But spending too much time as Carter has made him care about people too much to let the Romulans just take the ship. So, so let me get this straight. So you're, you're part of this, this, this evil plan because you are basically on your planet the loser of, of, of all your people. Yep. And the Romulans trusted you, the guy who's, I guess, I'm assuming guy, of course, uh, that, uh, you know, that is considered inept and incapable compared to everyone else he has ever met. Apparently. I don't think the Romulans um, made a good decision here, to be honest. Kirk says he understands, but that Carter's still going to have to stand trial, but he will report on how Carter saved the ship, and that will probably be counted in his favor. Anne requests that she be allowed to take on Carter's guard duty, because I guess she's uh, mulling over this whole tentacle idea. Yes. Um, though, I, I guess as far as like a security uh, you know, standpoint, this is a terrible idea, because she's kind of emotionally invested in one of his forms. Yeah. It's an awful idea. Yes. Also, they're wandering off. It's like, so you got the? Are you getting the fortune, Mister Billionaire? Yep. So, um, are you uh, still super rich? Uh, I kind of like that. Uh, you, you can just go in and say, "Yeah, I am actually uh, Mister Carter there," and uh, just give me all my money, and I'll buy my way out of prison. <laughs> 
So Spock and McCoy both expect gratitude that the alien didn't impersonate the other one for too long because having more than one of them around would be too much for them to handle. Goofy music. Yep. (laughs) The end. The end! (laughs) So uh, we've got a little uh, tale of intrigue and impersonation and uh, uh, tentacles everywhere. I found this one pretty interesting, generally, because you don't as often get this, like, the the shapeshifter guy just developed such a soft spot for um for the people that he's impersonating he's like you know what i like living as a human and i care about you yeah you know usually in you know especially you know not just in star trek but in science fiction in general you know the person who is uh in, you know doing the impersonating you know is like haha i am able to manipulate and you know pull the wool over everyone and the kind of mustache twirling uh, to a certain degree um, but also, you know, especially when they're, you know, as their alternative forms sort of, uh, uh, you know, depicted as being very unhuman like, then they are, you know, they tend to be more prone to being just so different from their thinking that they can't understand the things that they're uh, impersonating. Uh, this shows up a few times in Star Trek, uh, most notably with the founders in Deep Space Nine. Yeah, this guy. Is like well, take it's it's basically the alien version of walk a mile in your shoes. Like yes. I turn into people, that makes me more like people. I like it. It's kind of an anamorph situation. And spend too much time as a person, and you're going to become an eagle. Uh, <laughs> though uh, there was uh, the uh, you know the, the time those aliens, uh, those uh, also eldritch beasts from beyond, uh, you know, took the uh, Enterprise over and were turning people to cubes. Uh, you know that that was sort of a you know, suddenly they have human failings, but they're still kind of like jerk faces. So we can, uh, you know, make use of some of that, but not, you know, appeals to emotion. Yeah, they got tempted by the flesh. Yes. This guy got tempted by the niceness, maybe. It, it, I couldn't find anything specific, but it did sort of remind me of this idea. Um, this is the 70s by now, so we've got a 60s and 70s Cold War thing of the spy who comes over and sees how amazing America is and wants to stay in our, you know, capitalist utopia. That's, uh, you know, people in Romania watching Dallas and going, maybe this isn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's just mild speculation on my part. But it's, I did find it interesting that he's interpreting, he's like a billionaire and maybe I think they're implying that he, because he's a philanthropist, he cares about people a lot, and that caring is what like swayed Mister Alien. But you know, billionaire philanthropist is kind of an interesting choice. Well, it's also maybe what was convenient because uh, you know he's not necessarily lying about you know meeting the you know the, the original dude there uh, and trying to nurse him back to health because uh, you know that could have very much happened, and that's how he got. So, you know, able to sort of uh, duplicate this guy, which probably explains why the Romulans chose him uh, out of everyone on his plan to go on this mission. Oh, yeah, probably. I was just thinking narratively, it's interesting that they went with like, oh, of course, billionaire philanthropist guy. I guess because everyone would know him and they for some reason trust him, even though like the existence of this person just suggests so many societal failings. Yes. Like the the existence of an ultra billionaire to begin with is just just like no no one becomes rich without exploiting a lot of people down the chain. 
Especially that rich. This is he's made multiple fortunes off of shipping empires and mining and things. Yeah, well, well, maybe to make all the the humans of, of the Federation happy, he was only exploiting aliens. Yeah, that's bad. Better. Uh, what here? Because then hmm. it's racist too. Yeah. Dang it. Then also, uh, also of course went to the philanthropist thing, which is like now this guy has so much wealth that he has to swoop in. To save entire planets, which is like something the government should definitely be handling. Yes, though uh, yeah, there is several examples throughout Star Trek, and you know, even up through TNG eras, where it was you know the, the the Federation just kind of fails completely to like help out one of their own planets, and it's kind of like kind of head scratching. Yeah. So so maybe that you know for all the Federation's ideals and things like that. They're really bad at this one thing. <laughs> I mean, we can't really judge. Federation ideals do not exist until we get to the movies. Yes. So at this point, we have a loose idea of a universe that sometimes exists outside the ship and sometimes doesn't. Kind of is a hodgepodge of collected items that don't fit well together. But are just kind of like, well, people in the 60s and 70s are going to assume that the world outside the ship kind of works like this. So... We'll just roll with it, you know. We're not going to do much too too much world building there. They did have the. I I didn't love the implication that uh, by this time, when you have like all these aliens and cat women on the bridge and all this stuff, that one that someone's so hung up on their fiance that they're still like pining over them after five years and haven't moved on at all. It's like, oh my god, finally you're back and I can live again. After five years of you being presumed dead. And well, then maybe. that the person would have a hang-up about them being an alien. Yeah. Well, you know, for, for Anne there, there, it might be that, you know, uh, she she said yes to his proposal because she's, like, super much, uh, like, a fangirl of him. And so, you know, it's never going to say die when it, when it comes to your obsession with your celebrity crush or something like that. Uh, that's worse. <laughs> yeah. You made it, it that's worse. worse. Yeah. But it, would ex- it kind of explained things and yeah. What did you have to talk about? This episode was too simple and doesn't really go in for much except for some minor political intrigue. Well, uh, there is the, the whole celebrity thing. Oh, that is true. It has become like a thing in the, you know, especially in the U.S., but it's also also been a thing throughout human history to certain extents. Weird freaking rich guy celebrities. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, just uh, the other day there was that meme about, you know, uh, the, the whole GameStop stuff there. Uh, and, uh, you know, someone's looking, you know, ha- you know, s- you know, Ghibli looking over to, to Legless saying, you know, I never thought I'd be doing this with a Redditor. And the Redditor looking back, which is, of course, Legless saying, you know, it's like, Daddy uh, Elon's going to take us all to Mars. And of course, Gimli's like, what the hell? <laughs> what? Sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's very much in that same vibe there, uh, that there is this, 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 this propensity in human societies for some fraction of the people to get super obsessed with people that have uh, wealth, that have fame, that have uh, you know, various you know, you know, power of any sort, uh, or at least the perception of it, and being weirdly devoted to them without that person having ever done anything good or bad to them and sometimes even bad things and it's a little weird 
I sometimes yeah. wonder if we have... So there's a very pervasive idea in modern Western societies that everything's fine. Everything's working as should. The main issue is who's in charge. Yep. The only thing that we need, really need to do is find the correct person to follow and then do what they say, and then everything's going to turn out fine. And the celebrity sort of thing, especially like rich, powerful celebrities, is that kind of like, I've chosen my person to follow. And if you know everyone would just come along with me on that, the world would be perfect and everything would be great. It gives you a sense of it gives you an interesting sense of control without actually having to be in control of anything, which is scary. Yeah, it's basically you've delegated all that responsibility onto someone who actually has no direct control over you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Though they do have some amount of direct control because of the way we structured our society to let people with money have too much control over whatever they want. But, you know, even assuming that that wasn't the case, it would still probably be a dynamic of this sort, sort of affecting our, our civilization just in general. I mean, it's difficult to know. We don't have any good historical examples, even though these places have existed, of more leaderless, less hierarchical societies. Uh, that's definitely been something that has existed and has popped up a lot of times throughout history. It's just something that we in the modern world choose to ignore for the convenience of not having to justify why things are like this now. Yes, and also it uh, goes against the great man theory of history, which is, yes. you know, <laughs> which is forbidden in a lot of uh, corners. So, Which is like, this is a very modernist take on it. A lot of people kind of see, like you said, Elon Musk as the modern great man who is just going to fix all of our problems with space magic. Now, uh, never mind uh, any of the details or how he's going to do that or why he has a bunch of money in the first place. You know, some sort of, you know, South African diamond mine with slavery, you know. But, uh, you know, he, he's clearly, clearly a, a virtuous person because he is someone I know that exists <laughs> with, with money and power. So, yeah. Though interestingly, they don't they don't talk about this guy like he's got any sort of power beyond being a philanthropist, which I suppose this could be the transitional period of Star Trek history where we're moving into to um deifying philanthropy itself where you actually do care about people and you're not just using it as a way to make yourself feel better about exploiting millions. Or to true. for some sort of PR slash tax break. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to, you know, you know uh, the current habits now where it's like, yes, we gave this many millions of dollars to these charities, and thus we pay this many million dollars exactly less in taxes. Oh my, it's funny how that works out. But uh, I guess as far as, uh, you know, the, uh, the sort of a parasocial sort of relationship that people develop with, uh, you know, you know, you know, well-off, uh, individuals, uh, it, it, it has kind of taken on different forms has been, uh, you know, used and abused in a number of different ways throughout history. You know, uh, you go back to the ancient uh, times and very much like, you know, being deified. Yes. This person is a living God and, uh, you know, all that sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, like the, the hero worship sort of cults and things like that. Uh, you know, you know, you know, during the, you know, the early rise of fascism, there, fascism, there was sort of like very much a, 
yeah, we got a cult of personality going on here. And, uh, you know, everyone has to love the dear leader. Otherwise, you are against the state because they are the state. Dun, dun, dun. And, uh, and so it's, I guess it's preferable if this is going to be a thing that it's people just kind of going gaga over the Beatles or something like that. But, you know, it's still kind of something that can be easily abused if the, you know, uh, if certain people that are eager to use and abuse this uh, sort of relationship uh, gain, you know, power and are willing to use it to, in order to gain more power and eventually take over. So, so be careful about celebrities, guys. They'd be dangerous. <laughs> You get in a weird, you get into a weird place with celebrity. It's something that people are still currently studying. But you get in this this odd, you get this odd like double thing right now. Uh, we we are coming back to it. You would have people who were like well known because they had power, and it was kind of that, like they were well known. Because they'd gained power or notoriety in a certain segment, like, say, the example that's jumping to mind is, like, Julius Caesar in ancient Rome became a famous general by winning a bunch of strategic victories, then used that popularity to take over the government, and then yep. became famous because he'd taken over the government. So I'm extra famous now. Hooray! <laughs> um, yes, make me super dude. Right now, we have this sort of... It, you still get power, but the reason that you have celebrity is not because you have the power. Your sort of recognizableness is useful and can be parlayed into our current system through like you know brand deals and associations and things. So getting being popular and likable is itself something that's sellable which we're seeing a bit more now with the sort of um i don't quite know what to call it it's sort of the influencer culture but it's it's more of like a i, I want to say like amateur celebrity like someone who gained notoriety on social media and got enough followers that they became useful to corporate interests so justin bieber yeah, basically. Though he later transitioned into other celebrity because of the music industry thing, which props up people to, for its own corporate interests. But you still wind up with people like popular YouTubers and people who have uh, lots of Instagram followers who haven't launched out into other areas, but they have enough wide range of audience with their own like smaller subset of people that they're still useful to the wider corporate interests as a recognizable face to human to sort of humanize whatever it is they're trying to sell indeed um so uh are we gonna get any sponsors anytime soon you think oh i doubt it <laughs> <laughs> maybe a patreon i'm way too marxist for the <laughs> oh uh so yeah i i guess you know as, as being folks that are sort of well aware of these sort of dynamics to a certain degree, we're kind of cautious about trying to abuse them. Uh, though, if we ever do, do like call us out, though, guys. So just, <laughs> you know, because if, if we come with jerk faces, yeah, yeah. I'm under no illusions that I'm good enough at social media to ever have this problem. I also like to promote lots of other people sometimes when I, you know, sort of like remember to. Uh, and so it's sort of like, you know, if I'm going to be promoting something, I want to be promoting people that are also kind of in you know, in a position that they don't have the corporate backing and thus their entire livelihood is sort of dependent on 
just sort of word of mouth stuff. And so that they might eventually get to that point, maybe, uh, or this will just make, you know, make sure that they're more likely to survive in the long term. And so, yeah, I'm not necessarily going to be good for, uh, for, for brands <laughs> or, or as my friend, uh, uh Hago likes to, likes to say, brands. But you can kind of break down modern celebrity into this weird little thread of kind of usefulness. Because you even see it. There's some people who, like, celebrities who've fallen out of the spotlight because they've become too controversial or unpopular. They are still wealthy and they still have a certain amount of power from their old celebrity or from the amount of money that they made, like, being a celebrity. But you don't see them pop up as much because they're unpopular enough that brands and things no longer find them useful to use promotionally. So even if they are still working, and even if they are still in like movies or TV or whatever it is they're famous for, they're not as pushed as much because they're no longer as useful as sort of the friendly face or even neutral face of something. So we've gotten to this interesting point where celebrity has sort of been folded into capitalism in a way where people just become another marketing tool. Yeah, you, know, you become the product. You become the advertisement. You become the uh, the spokesperson, you know, directly or indirectly. So there's my anti-capitalist rant for the day. I have to get one in every day or I get a migraine. Yeah. <laughs> Hooray! So uh, no migraine for Gepwin today. Um, so I, I guess you know, the other things I, you know, kind of pulling it back around to the philanthropy uh, sort of thing is that some of the earliest celebrities in the United States kind of became such because they were philanthropists. Uh, you know, you got your Rockefellers, your Carnegie's, you got your Fords as well. Uh, sort of, uh, you know, they, you know, given a bunch of money to, you know, you know, you know, to, to build libraries or, 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 or sort of whatever's. And, uh, you know, starting foundations to go, you know, help feed, you know, you know, help increase uh, farm productivity in a bunch of places and uh, make sure people aren't starving as badly in, the, you know, in other parts of the world. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, and people start hearing about these stories it's like, oh, this person must be a very good person. And thus I am going to make note of them and have them as part of my sort of cultural zeitgeist here. Because they have been doing these things and because they've been doing these things, the word has been getting out. And so it's sort of a very early sort of form of celebrity here because it wasn't necessarily being uh, exploited in the same way. But also these folks were capitalists who were making a lot of money doing whatever they were doing. You know, you know Ford is still a Ford Motor Company. It still exists here. So having a big, you know, uh, a philanthropy organization sort of associated with that name uh, is good for business because, like, yes, we are the good guys here, and uh, you know, some of our money is going to go to save the world here. So if you buy our cars, you're not just buying yourself a car, but you're maybe saving a life, man. Well, a lot of those particular philanthropist celebrities, Rockefeller, you know, Carnegie. Uh, came from our last big era of um, monopoly capitalism. It's like, well, I, I've won, so what now? <laughs> mm. And some of them, like, got all of the wealth and power, and then were like, oh, well, something is actually wrong with the world. I'm going to go do some. I'm going to, like, give my money to someone. Or, I, I mean, Ford just gave his money to Nazis. Yeah. Well, so there's yeah, that. 
that's one of the other things that Ford uh, would rather let's not think about when we're, uh, you know, they're thinking about their name. But so that you don't hear about that one very often. But the very really like <laughs> the existence of philanthropy itself is a failure of your societal system. It means that there's a need that is not being met by how things are set up. Presently. Yes, you have an inequity in resources. That means one person has extra resources and they have to choose to give them to someone with less resources. But one, that's not a good way to even things out, even though people would argue that, like, well, if you have extra resources, it's your right to give them to whoever you choose. And in our system, that is true. Uh, but one that's never going to be distributed equitably just because of logistical reasons, uh, aside from like each individual then having to decide who they think is worthy of help and all these other things. But also, it's just more responsibility than a single person should have. Yes. This should not be, it should not be the responsibility of any individual to help the society overall. The society should be set up in such a way where everyone is helping everyone else so that each person's amount of help is actually relatively low. Yeah, it's, you know, we all contribute something so that we are able to collectively get stuff done. And so it's not just on one person's uh, shoulders. Which is this, this is this double-edged sword that you get with the, like, great man thing. Like, it's this nice idea I can see the appeal. You just have like, like the one person who can just go and get stuff done, and you don't have the governmental roadblocks, and you don't have to worry about reaching consensus or majority or any of these other things that slow the processes down. And it looks like you're accomplishing a lot, but then you just put so much on one individual that they just can't accomplish it. So you get measures that might help some, but don't necessarily go all the way or to where they need to be, or are done effectively or last to the long run or, you know, a bunch of other, you know, sort of things that can go horribly wrong here. Which like, I can, I can somewhat understand the place that we're in right now. We have such massive wealth inequality and I am sure someone like Bill Gates legitimately wants to help people and legitimately believes that he's doing a good job. But it's just too much for even one person with that many resources to do. And he feels put upon and hated because people are criticizing what he's doing, which makes him less able to help anyone. And uh, there is also the, the whole structural thing in uh, our current society where even people that are trying to become philanthropists find themselves in a weird position where they're making a lot more money than they're able to give away. That too. Also, yeah. you run into an issue where like... Uh, if someone like all these people are still profiting off of their old businesses, even if they're retired, like Bill Gates still profits off Microsoft stock, you know, dividends, all that junk. Helping too many people breaks this capitalist system in such a way that it would stop making the money. And the current way that we have things set up, if you have to have a billionaire philanthropist to help, they have to be making money in order to help people. So if they start doing something that makes them less money, it's this cycle where they see it as something that's going to prevent them from helping more people. So you get into this bad catch-22 thing where if you help too many people, your ability to help people becomes reduced because it breaks the system that's making you the money that lets you help people. 
Yeah. So uh, it's like, well, if I want to help people, then I have to defend capitalism. That kind of sucks. Yeah. But you can see it now in the way that there's been years-long debates over giving people enough stimulus checks to live during the pandemic without having to go out and put themselves in danger to work. They have they have blatantly said, if you let people live without having to work in an exploitive system, they will not want to go back into the exploitive system, and we cannot have that. Maybe we, maybe we can have that. We, we can. There's funny. no particular yeah. <laughs> reason we can't. We've just decided that that's how it's going to work. And so we continue in the same little game over and over again. Alas. I heard this interesting interview the other day where they were talking about minimum wage increase versus universal basic income. And the person said that, yes, universal basic income would probably solve more problems than minimum wage increase would. But in America, we've decided that people have to work to live. Therefore, the only thing we're actually going to get past is minimum wage increase. Which is better, but not what it could be or what it should be. Well, I was thinking about this the other day. It's ridiculous. Like, we, we have these things in place that we treat like have always been there and are some sort of unchangeable force of nature. But they're just not. If you actually just say, maybe if someone either can't work or for whatever personal reason chooses not to work that shouldn't mean that they starve to death mm -hmm. that makes quite a bit of sense if you just say it that way but people have all this layer and layer of stuff on top of it to kind of obfuscate that that's what we're doing we've said that it's okay to let someone starve to death if they don't work but there's no particular reason that that has to happen especially someone who's not directly involved in the process of producing food so I'm reminded of the uh, uh, the BS Jobs uh, uh, conversation I think we had uh, a while back, uh, where jobs that are made just so that someone can have a job, but they don't actually do anything. Yes, it's a, it's <laughs> like a criticism. What's weird is it's often a criticism of unions that they have minimum employer policies to keep it minimum employment policies to keep everyone working. But this is a phenomenon that just happens. In corporate America, like, you know, job creation is such a big thing. You will have redundant positions, positions that literally do nothing. Someone who writes a report on someone else who's writing a report on someone else who's writing a report. So you know, this whole uh, sort of stack of nonsense that doesn't actually help anyone or do anything other than move some money around. And what's particularly interesting is people who have reported on this phenomenon, it, it makes people depressed. And the theory behind the system is you should just be happy to do anything as long as you get paid for it and can live. But people want to feel like they are contributing to something. So like the very fact that doing a nothing job that contributes to nothing, even though you are getting paid for it, does not make someone feel happy and fulfilled, disproves this notion that the only way to get someone to do something is to give them money, is to pay them for it and have a price incentive or it's barely an incentive like you do have this idea of incentive where if you do all the right things and work hard enough and do all these great things you will become the billionaire and get all the wealth and power and whatever but the actual <laughs> thing that we're doing here is saying if you do not do this and play along with the system you will starve to death yeah so it's more of a threat as opposed to an incentive yes you know maybe people don't like living under constant threat constantly uh, 
just seems like a, a bad way to live where you're kind of always this close from, you know, starvation, death, injury, you know, being homeless, all that stuff. They don't. It puts a massive amount of stress on people. But, you know, I get to sit here and talk about this because my family's been solidly in the like middle middle class for three generations. And so I get to have time to sit here and think about it and talk about it and critique the system because I don't have to spend literally all of my time trying to survive, which is the way that we treat most people. And uh, I've got a sort of similar background here and it's like, wow, uh, like just going back, you know, like a couple generations in my own family, you know, it's like, yeah, it's sort of middle class for the time, sort of general generic farmer sort of folks there. Uh, And then just kind of continues that. And that's kind of lucky on my part, but you know, I looked to my neighbors, looked to my friends, and some of them have very different sort of backgrounds and sort of that experience in, you know, interacting with other folks is like, wow, like, I kind of want to do the right thing, but maybe I'm running with that philanthropist uh, sort of a dynamic again. But then I say, no, no, this is bullshit. Let's like actually change the system. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was having this discussion with someone the other day. Even like this is a giant system. No individual is going to be able to change it, but you can admit that it's wrong. And then when the time comes, when it can change, you won't be in the way. It's like, oh yeah, so it is wrong. And so you are some folks that are trying to change it and you've you know done the footwork in order to do that. I can help or get out of the way. So, you know, I'm going to pick one of those two options because I know the, th- the system's uh, you know, all borked up. Yeah, um, down with capitalism. Yeah, I think that's where we got to. <laughs> the also shape shifting aliens are fun. Yes, <laughs> uh, I didn't have any you know, thing really to talk about on that front there, uh, other than yeah, they're, they're kind of fun and I, I, more props to the show for you know pushing the you know getting out of the every you know rubber forehead alien sort of situation, which is. You know, dominate a lot of Star Trek. So. That is true. This is a cool alien, and I will give this episode some props because this is, I guess, is where the animation budget went. This thing moved. It had like expression. You, the way that it interacted with the crew, even when attacking them, it sort of had this like, "I'm going to knock you out, but then gently lay you down on the floor because I don't actually want to hurt you." That you could tell the alien's personality and motivations from the way it was animated, which is unheard of for this show. Yes. So everyone else is still kind of walking around like robots while this this tentacle alien is like, all right, I'm going to lightly touch you here and you're falling over. I'm going to catch you. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So that's all I had. Yeah. Okay. We went on a 20 minute rant about capitalism. So I think now it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the game show parts of the show. I hope everyone's having a fantastic time right now. I know I am. So uh, let's uh, you know tally up some points here and start handing out prizes. I hope everyone's ready. Our first uh, prize is the Fanboy Prize, which goes to Kirk and Company for kind of doing this over Carter Winston. What, is they, what do they win, Gepwin? They win fake autograph books where they can sell them on Space eBay because they got this guy who can just like... He can do Carter Winston photographs. 
He can do Kirk photographs. Like he could go take over for Shatner at conventions. Like they've got the ultimate like the merchandising fan machine here, and they should take advantage of it. That is quite true. So uh, they're going to be a. Uh... You know, uh, you know, even if they don't have access to Carter Winston's original fortune, they're still going to be able to recreate it if they so wish. Whoa! Our second prize is the Fooled You Prize, which goes to the Vandorian for playing Carter Winston and others just so well. What does it win, Gepwin? He doesn't win anything because he just, like, he's Carter Winston, the richest man in the universe now, and he's just, he's just got it. He's fine. Yeah, he's Because he's it. fooled yeah. us so good. <laughs> Yeah, he's a, he can go into the bank and uh, recreate his signature perfectly. They'll never know the difference, unless Kirk blabs. But you know, Kirk's got to have that big, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, autograph deal and all that. So he'll be good to go, I think. Our third and final prize is the Romulans Gangs Prize, which goes to the Romulans for trying to rules lawyer themselves a captured Enterprise. What do they win instead, Gapwin? The Romulans win, getting their other ship captured, because now they're in violation of the treaty. I guess Kirk didn't want it, but either this treaty goes only one way, or... I don't think this treaty is very good. No, it's not entirely clear what the actual letter of the law says, but, uh, you know, maybe maybe after the episode they they went back and captured that guy, or that ship there. Who knows? That's all I got, Gepwood. So uh, feel free to take us away. Uh, Our contestants here, uh, they keep I, I'm a little confused here. I thought we had uh, four McCoys here suddenly. I'm, I'm, I'm a little, little lost here. Gap, but save me. Well, that's a scary thought. So thank you, everyone, for joining us here on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. Next episode. I don't. Infinite Vulcan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Infinite Vulcan. So, uh, so uh, Spock gets huge and large. The only thing I know about this, the only thing I know about this, is that it's supposed to be the worst of the animated series episodes, which, from what we've seen so far, is probably saying something. <laughs> I've seen pieces of it, but I've not seen the entirety of it myself before, so I'll be kind of going into this a little, a little cold, but I have heard enough that it's not going to be completely cold. I'm seeing the words eugenics wars in the description. Okay. Yeah. Um, was written by Walter Keening. Yes. So Chekhov has, has not appeared in the animated series here at all. Not even like a stand-in. So Walter Keenan came back for this. And wrote an episode. Yes, that everyone hates. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. Well, it's just, you know, getting revenge. You know, sometimes, you know, you have to go do what you can, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I don't know. We'll see. He's, yeah. Poor guy. The only thing anyone knows about him is that horrible accent from the movies. So He was just trying to become a writer. Oh, he he did. Uh, Walter Canning does show up in uh, uh, Babylon Five as uh, Bester, uh, the the psychop, uh, who is one of the most interesting bad guys on the show for, by by far. Uh, he is also shows up in a movie called Boontrap, which is hilariously bad, but uh, you know, 
Yeah, it sounds it. <laughs> Just based on that name. <laughs> so uh maybe we can maybe we can cover that sometime at some point in the future. It's like from the eighties. <laughs> well, there's one. Found the writing process of the infinite Vulcan unbearable due to interference from Roddenberry. Well, that seems to be pretty common actually for, yep. for Star Trek. <laughs> yep. Well, we'll find out what's going on with Mega Spock next time on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Chekhov's Revenge! You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbeam, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>